Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I've got some news here about one of my sponsors, and that's Spoken. Um, so as well as their message-based English learning service, they are now launching voice calls. So with Spoken Calls, you can have 25-minute voice calls with their trained native English-speaking instructors through WhatsApp, Line, WeChat, and other platforms, right? So actual conversations with their teachers, not just text-based stuff. In your voice calls, you can focus on the most important topics for you, such as meetings, conference calls, interviews, or even just general conversation skills in English. And for a limited time, you can try your first voice call for 50% off when you go to getspoken.com slash LEP. 50% off your first voice call at getspoken.com slash LEP. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, folks. How are you doing? Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you're doing all right. I'm feeling quite pleased with myself today because I put some shelves up. Um, I don't know if you often put shelves up, if this is something that you've ever had to do. To put shelves up. Uh, so I've been doing DIY. DIY, do it yourself. DIY means all the bits of work and stuff that you do at home. Like, for example, painting, redecorating, putting up shelves and things like that. So we're kind of having to um, rearrange the, the flat here uh, because, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have a baby, aren't we? So, you know, when you have a baby, you have to do things. You have to make changes. You've got to sort of move things around, make space for where this other person is going to go. Um, you see, because when you have a baby, yeah, it's it's basically having another person in your life. Suddenly, you've got this other person. You've got to, first of all, keep them alive and then kind of bring them up and all that stuff. Wow. Um, and, you know, obviously babies, when they start, they're, they're small, aren't they? They're very small. But they grow into people. You know how it works. You should. Anyway, um, so the point is that we've got to make space where we put the the baby's cot. The cot is the thing that the child will sleep in. It's a, it's a bit like a bed crossed with a prison. That's a uh, a cot. You know what I mean. You want your child to have somewhere to sleep, but at the same time, you don't want them to escape in the middle of the night or at least roll over and fall out of the bed. It's for their own protection. Um, but anyway, so we've got to find a place for the cot and for Babies, the baby's stuff and things like that. So basically, we're rearranging the flat a little bit. And part of that involves um, uh, moving books around. We've got loads of books uh, because books are nice, aren't they? They're nice uh, things to have, obviously, to read, the, all the wonderful things you can get from books, but also they look nice on shelves. So we've got lots of books downstairs. So we've had to move books. And uh, we've, I also have this uh, I've got an electric piano 
that used to be downstairs, but um, we have to move that out in order to put some other stuff in its place. So the, the piano had to come up here in the Skypod, uh, where I record episodes of the podcast. I call it the Skypod. Um, yeah, or space pod uh, at night. Anyway, so the piano had to come up here, which meant that I needed to make space up here. So I used to have this sort of set of really dodgy, cheap white shelves. I had to get rid of them, take them apart and get them out, put the piano in where the shelves used to be. And then um, because all those books, you know, where, what was I going to do with all the books that came from the white shelf? So I had to uh, put up some shelves on the wall above the piano and I've done that, and um, I mean that's that's a that's an annoying thing to do. I don't know if you've ever had to put shelves up. If you're not very practical, if you're not a practical person, if you're not good with your hands, uh, if you're not good at DIY or carpentry and things like that, then it's often a very frustrating experience, isn't it? Putting up shelves because you you have to make sure that they're straight. You've got to try and work out exactly where they're going to go. You've got to have to make sure that they're going to be in line with each other and perfectly straight. So that involves using rulers and bits in a pencil and uh, a spirit level. Do you know what a spirit level is? A spirit level is they're usually yellow. I don't know why they're usually yellow, but they usually are. Certainly in uh, certainly in uh, in the UK and in France as well, apparently. So a spirit level is kind of like this. It's like a ruler usually about a metre long. Um, but inside the ruler, there are these little um, spirit level things, like, uh, how do you describe them? It's like a little tube of liquid, and inside the liquid, there's a bubble. And you know when the uh, thing is level, because the bubble moves into the centre of the tube. That's a spirit level. Um, you see them on things like camera tripods as well. It's a way of making sure that something is perfectly horizontal or vertical or something. So you've got to use the spirit level, you've got to use a ruler to make sure that you're putting the shelves in the right place. You mark the little spots where you're going to drill holes. Then you've got to get your drill out and, and choose the correct drill bit which goes in the in the front of the drill. And um, uh, so you've got to get the right drill bit. It's got to be the right sh uh, size. It's got to be the right kind of metal you know, if you're drilling into wood or if you're drilling into uh, into the wall, you know, depending on the material. And then you've got to drill it in properly. And then into the hole that you've drilled in the wall, you need to put a little plastic thing, uh, which is actually called a roll plug, a roll plug, not a wall plug, not W-A-L-L-P-L-U-G, but a roll plug. I don't even know how you spell roll plug. Um, okay, R... A W L P L U G. So it's a roll plug, not a wall plug. So you have to get a raw you have to get the right kind of roll plug and put that into the hole. And then obviously you can attach the uh, shelves to those fittings that you've just created. And you you know, if you again if you're not practically minded, then there's this sort of other element, this element of luck or the hand of fate that gets involved. Um, regarding like whether or not it ends up straight. So you have to kind of pray or you kind of use the force or whatever it is and uh, just hope that it's going to end up straight and you keep putting the the spirit level on there. Yeah, it's still straight. And keep you, you screw the shelves in, check it. It's still straight. Yes, they're straight. So I managed to put up these two shelves. They're straight and I've got all the books on there and it's very nice. And it's a good feeling when you've done that, you know, when you just even something basic like putting up some shelves 
gives you a good feeling. I feel like a real man now. I feel like a proper man. I put shelf, me, strong man, put shelf up. It's a good feeling. So I'm feeling a bit uh, pleased with myself because of that. That's all it takes to make me feel pleased with myself, just to put wood on wall. Anyway, so that's what's going on here. How about you? How are you doing? Have you put a shelf up recently? Feels good, doesn't it? Uh, we also got rid of loads of stuff. You don't need to know this. You're probably thinking, all right, Luke, enough of the shelf banter. What about the big rocks that were promised in the title of this episode? Okay, then. So in this episode, I'm going to continue telling you stories of my recent holiday, and there will be descriptions of impressive rocky landscapes, a sort of geology lesson, and also a brief history of planet Earth. So just slightly ambitious in this one. Um, You can expect uh, plenty of solid descriptive chunks of vocabulary as this holiday diary continues. I expect that there'll be probably just one more episode to come in this series, and then it will be back to the usual sorts of episodes that I do, including a few conversations with some friends of mine as guests. Uh, But let's finish off the Holiday Diary series. So, uh, the first part of this trip was urban, right? Cities and stuff. Now it's all about earth, wind and fire. Um, Not the band, not the funk band from the 70s, no, but I'm talking about the elements, you know, earth, wind, fire, rocks, stone, water, ice, wood, time, stuff like that. Big things. It's going to be quite difficult to get across to you how amazing it was, but that's what I want to try and do. And I don't want it to just be a sort of, then we went, you know, as I've said before, I don't want it to just to be a a sort of boring holiday description. Hopefully it won't be that. Um, Hopefully it will also be a chance for me to talk to you about bigger things, um, bigger subjects, like, for example, um, geology and um, and the history of Earth. Geology, I hope you think that's an interesting subject. I think it is. I think basically any subject can be interesting if you just approach it in the right way, when you realise that any subject is basically connected to, all subjects are connected to something bigger, aren't they? The, the bigger thing being something about, uh, this again sounds pretentious, but it doesn't matter. All subjects, when you think about it, are all connected to certain bigger, a bigger theme, which is just the experience of being alive, right? And what it means, what, what, what's it all about? What is the world that we live in? And, and how, how does it all mean anything? And what's our place in the world? And uh, what does it mean to be a person living on Earth? Huh? Okay, I'm, I'm just trying to explain that kind of thing. So, all right then. So we drove from Las Vegas, right, on a road trip tour, a kind of loop in the Jeep that we rented. We went on a loop over about nine or ten days, stopping at various places to stay an, a night or two and taking in some of the most impressive spectacles of natural beauty that I've ever seen. And there were some incredible things. Now, I don't know about your country. I'm sure that where you live, you have some seriously big and impressive locations as well. I mean, the, there are some amazing places on Earth all around the world. Uh, places that are famous and that take your breath away when you see them. Places and things that I would love to see with my own eyes one day. There are so many places around the world that I'd like to visit. In the UK, in, in Britain, where I'm from... Our countryside is absolutely beautiful. I love the British countryside, but it's it's generally on a fairly small scale compared to other places. 
like for example i don't know if you've ever visited uh, the uh, the countryside certainly in england we have like rolling hills and little stone bridges over over rivers and it all seems quite self-contained or cute or something a bit like the shire or hobbiton in lord of the rings you know not all of it. We do have some impressive spots as well with big mountains and lakes, like, for example, in the Lake District or parts of Scotland in, um, obviously, the north of Britain. They've got some spectacular landscapes there. But certainly in England, it doesn't quite smash your senses like the things that we saw in Arizona and Utah. And, you know, and in your country, there might be similarly uh, impressive natural spectacles on a very large scale. Um, it's quite an amazing experience to to witness that sort of thing it makes you feel as an individual person it makes you feel sort of very small in comparison to the uh the the the, the massive uh visual things but also the general passage of time that you can be aware of when you witness uh something like the grand canyon which contains within it rock which is something like two billion years old you know it it just makes you feel sort of small, and uh, you realise your place in the in the epicness of the universe. Just that. So every day or two, we would be we'd stop in a different location, and we would be greeted by ever more stunning views as we toured around the border between Utah and Arizona, uh, from Zion National Park and Bryce Canyon National Park to places like Lake Powell, uh, where you can see stuff like Horseshoe Bend and Antelope Canyon. Uh, in the Navajo Nation territories, and finally the Grand Canyon as well, before heading back to Los Angeles via Las Vegas again. You can think what you like about the USA. It's a, a country of extremes. I mean, for example, there are plenty of things that aren't very appealing, like Pop-Tarts. I mean, Pop-Tarts, what even are they? They're, 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 they're sort of disgusting, aren't they? Do you know what Pop-Tarts are? They're like sort of things that you put in the toaster it's food stuff you put in the toaster and it's like a a tart in the shape of toast and you put it in and it's and they toast in the toaster and when they come out they're really hot and they're full of jam and uh it looks like jam on the inside but actually when you read the ingredients there there isn't actually any strawberry in there and they're just like fake kind of pop tarts i mean they're disgusting aren't they so it's a country of extremes the Grand Canyon and, like, Pop-Tarts and weird food. Anyway, you can say what you like about the country, but you can't deny that it has some truly breathtaking spots of natural beauty. And thankfully, most of these places were protected by the National Parks Project, which was initially set up at the end of the 19th century uh, and, and then was fully put into force in the early 20th century by the president at the time, who was Theodore Roosevelt. Um and in a nutshell, the National Parks Project was there to protect certain natural monuments. How can I explain this? Back in the late 1800s, when America was being populated, greed was rampant. Like uh, there was the gold rush where people were sweeping across the country and digging in the ground in a desperate search for, for gold and other precious minerals that they could uh, excavate from the ground, like oil and things like that. And if it wasn't for the protection of the National Parks Project, a lot of America's greatest assets would have been kind of cut down or blown up or dug up and sold off for private interest. Places like 
you know, some of these these spots in these national parks, some of those spaces could have ended up being privately owned, um, and they might have been like seriously damaged, um, and their natural beauty that had you know been d- developing over millions and millions of years might have been damaged or destroyed or simply unavailable to general members of the public who now, thanks to this project, can go and witness them and learn about them. Thanks to the National Parks Project, uh, these things are still available uh, for us to see today. So the whole area that we were driving around and visiting basically features canyons and cliffs that form what is known as the Grand Staircase. Okay, Now imagine a big staircase made out of rock. And I say a big staircase, I mean huge. It's it's spread out over hundreds of miles. In different locations, you can see different layers of rock that are exposed because the rock layers have been uplifted, uh, for example, by seismic activity under the ground, or they've been tilted, uh, exposing the rock, or that simply erosion has exposed uh, the rock as well. This is a series of colourful cliffs stretching between Bryce Canyon in the north of that general area and then the Grand Canyon, which is basically in the south. And then there's other places as well, like, for example, Zion National Park, which is kind of between the two. So from Bryce Canyon up in the north to the Grand Canyon in the south, we have this thing called the Grand Staircase. And it's it's famous and it's unique as well. It's one of the only places in the world where rock um, is exposed in this way. And it, this this is um, rock in something like 40 different uh, layers. Each layer represents a different sort of age in natural history. And the rock at the very bottom of the Grand Staircase is something like 2 billion years old. And the rock at the top is, you know, fairly, fairly young, really. It's about sort of 30 to 40 million years old. So there's all of this time and history, into, and it's the Earth's history as well, it's all there, all visible in these layers of rock which have been exposed because of various different sort of natural processes uh, in this area. That's the Grand Staircase. I didn't really know about this when uh, we arrived or when we were planning it. I knew when we were planning it that there were amazing things to see, but I hadn't quite sort of worked it out in this story of the Grand Staircase. We learnt about that when we arrived and when we... Um, for example, got information from from guidebooks or when we uh, listened to rangers who were employed by the national parks describing it all. Um, so it was a learning experience and something I found, found fascinating because it taught me things about the way in which the earth has, I don't know what, like developed over the years and how we occupy a tiny, tiny, tiny little chapter in the grand scheme of, of history. Um, so the Grand Staircase. Now, the bottom layer of rock at Bryce Canyon. So you've got Bryce Canyon at the top in the north. Um, so the the bottom layer of rock at Bryce Canyon is the top layer of rock at Zion. And the bottom layer of, of rock at Zion is the top layer at the Grand Canyon. And the bottom layer of the Grand Canyon is like the Colorado River. Uh, and that's that's the bottom of the Grand Staircase. Okay. So in terms of the staircase, Bryce is at the top, Zion is in the middle, and the Grand Canyon is at the bottom. If you were a massive giant, right, imagine uh, you're a massive giant like uh, Gulliver from Gulliver's Travels, 
or bigger, even bigger than that. Let's say you're a huge giant. Now, you could start at the riverbed at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and go up the staircase. And by the way, some of the stairs in the staircase are in fact huge plateaus uh, and kind of moving sideways across them. You can visit places like Lake Powell or Monument Valley where you, you, you can see these eroded tables and platforms and columns that stick up all around you. Uh, but you're this giant. You start at the riverbed uh, uh, in the bottom of the Grand Canyon and you go up the staircase, moving north over hundreds of miles, stepping up every now and then. You, you take steps up. Um, you walk up the cliffs. You walk up these stairs. You pass through Zion. You keep going until you get to Bryce Canyon at the very top. On your walk, you would ascend through about 40 identified layers of rock and about 2 billion years of history. The oldest sedimentary rock at the bottom of the staircase is 2 billion years old, and the rock at the top is about 40 to 30 million years old. So driving around the area, we were going up and then sort of going back down this staircase, because the, obviously the roads wind around and, uh, you know, you drive up. Uh, in altitude and then back down again. So we were driving uh, up and then back down this staircase, traveling through hundreds and hundreds and millions of years worth of time, as well as hundreds of miles of distance. This is one of the only places in the world where this much of the Earth's history is exposed uh, to, to us. And because of that, because so much old rock is exposed, it's one of the most studied geological areas in the world. And we've learnt a lot about uh, the Earth's history from this uh, this place. Uh, these 40 layers of rock are full of evidence that show us what happened in this area in the past. And that allows us to understand a lot about what happened in the Earth's history. Uh, and we're talking about things like prehistoric stuff, way before humans even existed. The story is told in the rock, including, for example, fossils of many dinosaurs. Fossils being the remains of... Uh, living things that got sort of buried in the ground and became stone, like petrified, and became fossils. Uh, you can find many fossils of things like, you know, dinosaurs. So as well as that, as well as the impressive sort of uh, uh, historical stuff, it's also just incredible to look at. The layers of rock that you see in these different areas have different colours. Some of them are rust-coloured. Some of them are sort of yellowy. Some are a bit pink. Some look white. Some are grey. Some are this deep blood red. And the different colours are caused by different, different chemical reactions in the rock. Things like, for example, the presence of iron in the rock, which when it when it meets, uh, I guess, water, it oxidizes and it changes color, a bit like the way an old bicycle will go rusty in the rain. If, if, an old, if you leave an old bicycle out in the garden and it gets rained on over the years, then eventually the iron in the, in the metal will, will react with the water and it, and it goes rusty and it changes color. Okay, it's a similar kind of a chemical process in this case. That's what turns the rock this these interesting colours. So our entry point into this grand staircase was Zion National Park, sort of in the middle. And we spent a day and a half there and did a fairly easy hike up the side of the canyon to a viewpoint. Now, we had to be very careful and cautious this time um, because obviously we didn't want to have another dramatic 
uh, hiking experience like we did in previous holidays. If you listen to the episodes I did about uh, traveling in Indonesia, you'll have heard the stories of us climbing up uh, a volcano called Mount Rinjani, and that was a uh, that ended up being a bit dramatic and fairly dangerous. And then in in um, Yosemite National Park on our honeymoon two years ago, we did a hike around the park, uh, which um, kind of turned into a sort of dramatic bid for survival, sort of. But um, anyway, you can listen to, I guess, episode, the fifth part of the California Road Trip series if you want to know about what happened in in Yosemite National Park. Um, but and it, we didn't want more, we didn't want dramatic hiking experiences and stuff. We wanted to take it very carefully, obviously, because my wife is pregnant. Now, if you're pregnant, you can hike, you can go walking in uh, in the countryside and so on. You just have to be a bit careful. Don't try anything too strenuous. And obviously, make sure that you've got plenty of water and that you cover your, your yourself from the sun. So we carried loads of sunblock. We carried loads of bottles of water that we bought from Whole Foods supermarkets. Uh, we, bought, we brought with us uh, food and supplies just in case. I mean, you know, the one in Zion was like an hour and a half of walking. So not that dangerous. But still, we packed up the rucksack with uh, all the supplies we needed. And I carried it all on my back. It was it's really heavy, but good exercise. Anyway, so um, we, we saw some incredible views from uh, this hike in Zion. Uh, Zion National Park is basically, well, it's like a huge canyon again. Um, imagine, the, imagine just the ground and then imagine some like rocks. Imagine standing on the ground in a big field, okay? Huge, wide open, flat field, okay? Now imagine on either side of you, huge rocks that, that create these massive walls that are really, really high, just coming out of the ground on both sides. And the rocks being, like all the mud getting washed away from the rocks. And then, uh, you know, that's what it was kind of like. So huge rock walls on two sides, very wide, and the rocks are these amazing orange and kind of rust-coloured uh, rocks. And then in the middle, you get like all these pine trees growing. And so if you climb up to a vantage point at the top somewhere, you can look along the canyon and uh, you can see these incredible cliffs on either side, either side of the canyon with these beautifully coloured uh, uh, rocks. And then you can see the canyon winding its way down into the distance. And then like there's a there's a, a twisting road at the bottom of the canyon and all these trees. It's just absolutely stunning. And as the sun comes down, you know, the colour of the rock changes. It's really incredible. So we spent some time there and then we drove north in a northerly direction up the uh, Grand Staircase in the direction of Bryce Canyon, which is another national park. Bryce Canyon is the highest point in the Grand Staircase. So we drove up towards an elevated point on one side of the canyon. This point is called Rainbow Point and it's at the end of a series of viewpoints. So the usual thing to do there is that you drive to the end of this point and you then and you look and take in the the spectacle, and then you drive back along this uh, this this route, stopping at certain viewpoints on the way to get different views and different sort of angles on the on the canyon, and and you can see different sort of uh, famous features in Bryce Canyon. Um, so I've described Zion. Let me now try and describe Bryce Canyon and sort of the thing about our trip. Um, I guess we were just fortunate in the way that we planned it. 
because we didn't really know exactly what each thing would look like. But we were quite lucky because we planned it in such a way that each thing we visited uh, was better than the previous one. So Zion is beautiful, but it's not quite as big or sort of in your face as the other things we saw. So it each one was like ever more impressive a spectacle as we went around this this loop. So Bryce Canyon, yeah, the highest point in the in the staircase. You drive out to this point, it's called Rainbow Point. So we drove there, took a like, you know, uh, two and a half hours of driving through this um, interesting landscape. Um, and then you get to this this the end of this road where there's like a car park and viewing points. Stop the car there and we walked out to the edge where you find barriers and information points and things like that. So it, the infrastructure is is quite good. You know, it's easy to drive to these places. You don't have to go off-road. You don't have to do lots of trekking through the wilderness. Um, and there are facilities and things like that. It's perfect, really, uh, especially if you're not completely mobile. So imagine now, I'm going to try and explain what it looks like when you're standing at Rainbow Point, looking out across um, Bryce Canyon. And by the way, you can see some photos of all this stuff on the page for this episode. It might be worth having a look at those photos while you're listening to this so you can actually see the things I'm describing. It might help you to just put it all together. So imagine standing on the edge of some cliffs, okay? Imagine you're, in, you're, you're sort of in an elevated position. The whole area, this whole plateau that you're, that you're on is, is very elevated. And you get to the edge of the plateau and there are some cliffs, and in front of you, there's this huge canyon. So the land just drops down in front of you. And to the left and to the right, really, it's really, really wide. The whole land just drops down in front of you. Um, and there are then thousands of bits of rock that stick up in this canyon. These thousands of bits of rock that stick up. Now, technically, Bryce Canyon's not really a canyon. A canyon really is... Um, formed by a river that runs through an area. And over millions of years, the river forms this um, this channel, this extremely deep, extremely wide channel. Bryce isn't really like that. It's just sort of like, how would you describe it? It's really hard to explain. But let's say it's like, um, instead of it just being one river that's 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 eroded this channel... Instead, it's just a, a more complicated process of of moisture leaking down into many cracks in rock, which then uh, splits the rock apart when it becomes ice, and then leaking down again as it melts a bit, and then splitting the rock again. So this form of erosion, which is just generally across the whole area of this moisture leaking down into rock, cracking it and leaking down and cracking it, and the, the bits of cracked rock fall down and fall away and then you know maybe some rainfall washes it down and you end up with some like a lot of rock that's been sort of chiseled away and and fallen away and then you end up with these remaining many many remaining uh, bits of rock that stick up in the canyon uh, okay, uh, and and the, these huge blocks of rock of different colors and they look a bit like huge statues. And there are some small riverbeds in there at the bottom and trees growing up from the bottom and then like big bits of rock that stretch out from the plateau into the canyon and those bits of rock have been eroded so you get these like weird towers sticking out, sticking up. 
it's hard to explain. It's it's really extraordinary, and it looks like some sort of alien land. So imagine this. So this, the, the, the land drops away, these big sticking bits of rock sticking up, and then way, way, way over on the other side, almost on the horizon, is the other side of this canyon. So you're standing on the edge of a plateau. It all goes down and, the, and down and down, and then way over in the distance, the plateau continues again on the other side. So there are other cliffs, and then the plateau continues. You can see all the layers of rock in these cliffs, all different colours. Now, all of this is caused by erosion, and the rocks that stick up in the canyon are all these very strange shapes. It's very stunning and weird. Like I said, it's like an alien landscape. I'll give you some more details of it in a moment. So at Rainbow Point, we saw a a guide, uh, a ranger, explaining all of it and how it fits into the grand staircase. And he was doing a really good job of telling the massive story of the place and enthusiastically putting himself into it. Um, And it was very interesting. And it helped us to understand a lot of the geology of the whole area. Now, I've already told you some stuff about the Grand Staircase, and it's pretty difficult to explain. It might be difficult for you to picture it, too. But I'd like to try to give you some more details of of the story of how all of this happened. Now, this is what I understood from the ranger. And uh, this guy, uh, the ranger, a guy employed by the park, wearing a green outfit and a wide-brimmed hat. So, the story of the Grand Staircase... This is ancient history and geology. And by geology, I mean the study of the Earth's structure, its surface, and its origins. So we've had space in previous episodes. We've had like belief systems, Scientology, uh, and, and a bit of pop culture. And now, uh, the history of the Earth itself. Yeah, I told you I had lots of stuff to get off my chest in this series of podcasts. So I'm, I'm now going to try and talk about the history of the Earth. I'm going to try to start right at the beginning, the Big Bang Theory. Not the TV show, uh, but the account of how the universe began, which is based on a lot of study and a lot of analysis of evidence and understandings of the way that the universe works, Um, the the collaborative work of many people over many years, people analysing evidence, creating hypotheses, testing them, coming up with theories that get adapted and improved and disproved and further changed. And the end result is that we get a pretty solid idea of what must have happened. Um, And the Big Bang Theory is the best that we have at this moment. It's the best theory we have to describe how all of this even began. So I'm going to try and go through it now. Um, I hope I don't lose you. Uh, I hope I don't lose myself either because uh, it's a bit complicated. Anyway, so at one point, right, the universe, everything that exists in the universe, all of the matter, like literally all of the building blocks, all of the elements, all the atoms and particles, everything that makes up everything around us, including, for example, you, me, your mobile phone, your computer, uh, your the the trousers that you're wearing or the skirt you're wearing or whatever, your shoes, uh, the air you're breathing, all of it, all of this stuff uh, um, was compressed into a space about the size of a pinhead. Everything, all the matter in the universe, all squeezed into the space of about the size of a pinhead. All of it in this little spot, uh, a singularity, an extremely high density and high temperature singularity. Because you know that when you apply lots of pressure to something, like, for example, if you try and squeeze uh, something into an extremely small space, what happens? What happens when you put 
really high when you put something under a lot of pressure. Obviously, it squashes, it squeezes, it gets smaller, but then eventually it will get hot. It'll get unstable, like the way in which uh, petrol reacts in a in an in, in an engine in a car. So the way that uh, the car gets uh, the car drives the wheels, uh, all that power comes from putting petrol under lots of pressure in the in the engine. The petrol is put under loads of pressure. So if you put that petrol under pressure, it just needs a spark of electricity or something and it'll ignite. So when you put something under lots of pressure, it gets hot and uh, it explodes, essentially. And that's what happened when this singularity, uh, because of the laws of physics, it was under such high pressure and there was so much density in there that it exploded bang and suddenly everything expanded out from this singular point and that was the birth of the universe that's the big bang everything all the all all the matter in the universe all the stuff just it very quickly expanded out from this tiny little point all this matter coming right out of this little point and expanding out okay now um this is from Wikipedia about the, the Big Bang Theory. It says, uh, Physicists are undecided whether uh, this means that the universe began from a singularity or that current knowledge is just insufficient to describe the universe at that time. But detailed measurements of the expansion rate of the universe, the, the speed at which the universe is, is basically moving or expanding away from a certain point, detailed measurements of this expansion rate place the Big Bang at around 13.8 billion years ago, which is thus considered the age of the universe. So the whole thing's about just under 14 billion years old. That's old. That's really old. Uh, okay. Now, after even, you know, you might feel old, like, for example, I'm 40 this year. I thought, oh God, I'm 40. Well, compared to the universe... I'm really, really young. Um, so that's nice, isn't it? Nice to remember. If you ever feel old, just remember that in comparison to the universe, uh, you're, you, you've, you've hardly even been born. So anyway, after the initial expansion, the universe cooled down sufficiently to allow the formation of subatomic particles and later simple atoms so these are like the basic building blocks of everything. Uh, and giant clouds of these primordial elements later coalesced through gravity, meaning they sort of came together, in halos of dark matter, eventually forming the stars and galaxies visible today. All right, so everything flew out from this singularity out into, um, into the universe. It cooled down and then... Uh, because of gravity, things started moving together in, uh, as it said, halos of dark matter. And eventually these things formed stars and galaxies. Okay, now this is, this is just what we know today. There's obviously still a lot that we don't know, like, for example, what dark matter is. But that's the whole point of science. We don't have to be able to explain it all at once. We're just working it out bit by bit. So anyway, after all that matter came together through gravity and the stars were created over an incredibly long period of time, by the way, and it's still going on now, Earth was also formed, uh, and it, Earth was formed from matter, from stuff that was basically left over from when the sun was created. 
so obviously the sun is a star. It's just one of the many stars that was created in that that sort of formed in the universe. Um, and the Earth is made up of stuff that was left over from the from when the sun formed. We're talking about clouds and dust particles containing all the elements that make up the building blocks of everything on Earth. So all this stuff coalesced into, in the in the case of the Earth, this stuff coalesced into this ball due to the force of gravity. Now we know that when you know if something has a uh, like objects are attracted to object other objects that have a greater mass than them. That I think is the law of gravity. Uh, it's something like that, basically. Uh, and in space, you know, it's a vacuum. So over millions of years, these objects will move towards each other. And then in the end, they end up sort of turning into like a sort of a ball. Yeah, uh, I'm just an English teacher. Okay, don't judge me on this is I'm trying to give you the layman's account of the history of Earth. So all this stuff coalesced into this ball due to the force of gravity. And in the early days, the Earth was very hot and it was basically molten lava. Okay, just molten lava, like like uh, liquid rock. And it was hit by lots of other lumps of rock that were still flying around the galaxy. So it was very sort of um, unstable in the early days. A lot of this rock left over from the sun's creation still exists in space. Not all of it formed the planets. Some of it's still just out there flying around in space and is orbiting our sun as well. Most of this stuff is actually in the asteroid belt. So it's just rocks and lumps of matter in the asteroid belt, which is located between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. If you took a spaceship and flew from Mars to Jupiter, you would need to fly through the asteroid belt. And if you've seen if you've seen Star Wars Episode 2, or indeed Star Wars Episode 5, you'll know it's not that easy to fly through uh, an asteroid belt, because these are huge lumps of, well, it could be anything, lumps of rock, lumps of metal in some cases. Um, and... Uh, so there are loads of asteroids which are not in this belt as well, and they're just flying around our solar system on different orbits around the sun. Uh, so the, the, the galaxy is not just populated by the sun and then the planets. There's also loads of other debris and matter that we call asteroids flying around. We're pretty sure that one or two of these asteroids hit the Earth uh, at some point in the past and probably wiped out the dinosaurs. Uh, because if a huge asteroid or two huge asteroids hit the Earth that tends to create a massive explosion, which is a bit like loads of nuclear bombs all going off at the same time. And that tends to make life on Earth a little bit tricky, like, for example, when the sun gets blocked out by dust or when the atmosphere is filled with poisonous gas from the explosions of asteroids. Uh, anyway, uh, one of those might actually hit us one day too. When I say us, I mean Earth now with us living on it which would be pretty bad news, as I'm sure you can imagine. But if we're clever, we would be able to prevent an asteroid colliding with us by probably sending Bruce Willis up there to just blow it up before it hits us. So, after the Earth cooled down, the molten rock on the surface cooled down to become the Earth's crust. Which is a bit like, if imagine if you leave out some soup in a bowl. Let's say you make some nice thick vegetable soup, yum, yum, yum but you don't finish it and you leave it in a bowl uh, in the kitchen and then you go travelling on holiday for three months. And because you're a very sloppy person, you didn't clean up the kitchen before you left. 
right? Because you're just that kind of person. So you left this bowl of soup on the side in the kitchen for three months. Now, what would happen to that soup? I imagine at the beginning, there would be a layer. It would dry out a bit on the top, wouldn't it? You get that sort of layer, um, uh, that kind of film that would uh, happen on the top of the soup. And then eventually, the soup would sort of dry up, wouldn't it? And you'd be left with a dry, caked layer of, of dry soup on the top, and then maybe some softer soup underneath. Basically, that's what happened on Earth, sort of, that the um, the Earth's crust dried out and became this kind of uh, layer on the top of the Earth. So the surface of the Earth was this crust made up of a number of different plates, because it's not all one single crust. You know, if, if you go deeper and deeper underground, eventually you, it gets really hot, and it's just magma. Ooh, magma, that's a good word. So, you know, the, the, the core of the Earth is, is, uh, is basically just really seriously hot magma. So lava is the stuff that spews out of the top of volcanoes. Pfft, that, it's amazing. Not very friendly, but it's amazing. That's lava that comes out of volcanoes. Under the ground, it's magma. So the Earth's crust is made up of a number of plates that sit on top of this mag- magma. And on top of these plates, you've got all the other stuff. You've got the land with different features, covered in oceans, a lot of it. Some of it's covered in grass, some of it's covered in water, like the oceans or lakes. Some of it's just rock and so on. Also, there are different types of rock. Yes, I'm going to teach you different types of rock now. Three different types of rock. Igneous rock, metamorphic rock, and sedimentary rock. Igneous rock. This is the stuff that's formed when magma cools down, basically. Okay, so sometimes it cools down when it's in the ground, and sometimes it cools down on the surface after being spewed out of volcanoes as lava. So lava or magma that cools down probably becomes igneous rock. Metamorphic rock, this is the stuff that's formed when uh, magma cools under the ground, but in certain conditions. Like, for example, when there's massive amounts of pressure or heat, and the rock gets compressed under serious heat and pressure and it changes quite drastically that's why it's called metamorphic rock because it's changed due to the the high pressure and high temperature conditions uh, metamorphosis means a change doesn't it so metamorphic rock rock that's been changed by really high pressure and temperature for example it becomes crystal or the rock has got layers of crystal in it and it's often extremely hard rock and it can be shiny or maybe striped with layers of crystal for example, diamond is a form of metamorphic rock because it's changed from pure carbon or coal, that black rock that we use to burn, you know, we burn it to, to uh, fuel our power stations and stuff. So diamond is metamorphic rock that's changed from pure carbon into diamond. Carbon is a sedimentary rock uh, and it, when it's when when so much heat and pressure is applied to it, in the right conditions, it can form into crystals like diamond, for example. Sedimentary rock, then. This is the stuff that usually forms on or near the surface. It's made of particles of, of sand or shells or pebbles, like little stones, and other fragments of material. Okay, And it's formed through like uh, deposits of sediments being deposited over many, many years, and then sort of pressure uh, forcing them together uh, into into rock. Imagine, right, you have a fish bowl with some fish in it, and you go away traveling for three months. So not only did you leave your soup 
on the uh, on the side in the kitchen. You also forget about your fish bowl uh, as well. You just leave. I don't know. You're very irresponsible. Maybe your friend just said, "Let's go traveling." Just drop everything and let's go traveling for three months. And you literally just leave without asking someone to look after your fish, without even doing the washing up. You just leave. So the the things that happen to these things in your flat are similar to the the things that happen to the earth over millions of years, just the slightly shorter time frame. So imagine you've got a fish bowl and you leave it for three months. Now, eventually the water in that fish bowl will get dirty, won't it? If, if you've ever had a fish bowl, you'll know. Uh, for example, if you... It's always a nice idea to get a fish bowl. Oh, let's get some fish. Yeah, a little fish bowl. And then you realise that you have to clean the bowl because the water gets dirty. So water in a fishbowl gets dirty. First of all, there are the little stones at the bottom. So that's the first layer of sedimentary rock. There are obviously the little stones at the bottom. That could be, for example, igneous rock or or, or uh, uh, metamorphic rock for whatever reason. Maybe it's been pulled down there by a glacier or something. There's these little stones at the bottom. Uh, then obviously it's all covered in water. There might be dust from the room that lands in the water and then kind of ends up in the water, causing the water to get dirty. And of course, there's other stuff like fish poo. If you've got fish living in there, they poo or maybe sort of dead scales from the fish end up in the water. And also the green algae, like plant life, that might build up in the water or on the surface of the, uh, on the, on the, surface of the bowl itself. And eventually the water gets cloudy and dirty and if you're not there to feed them, the fish will probably die. I know it's a sad story. And then over time, all of that stuff in the water will eventually settle on the bottom of the tank. It sticks to the sides of the tank and it settles on the bottom of the tank. And after three months, you end up with like a, a layer of sediment, including, a, sadly, a couple of dead fish and some, and some horrible sediment on the bottom. Now, imagine that process over millions and millions of years. Okay, now imagine that it's the ocean, which is also in some parts of the ocean washing over the surface of rocks and eroding them, creating more sand, which gets deposited onto the floor of the ocean. And also think of all all the sediment, things like the sand and little stones that get washed into the ocean from rivers. Now, all that stuff is sediment and it finds its way to the bottom of the ocean and it gets compressed. It gets compressed by the weight of all the water and the weight of all the other sediment on top of itself. Oceans or lakes don't last forever uh, and uh, they they sometimes dry out. Uh, the water just dries out it for whatever reason. And that then will expose all of the compressed sedimentary rock um, and... Also, that, that sedimentary rock that gets exposed, that sedimentary rock or sand, depending on what stage of development it's at, that stuff might get blown by winds uh, and it might get baked by the sun and the, the wind might blow it into big sand dunes, the kind of dunes that you would find out in the, in the Sahara Desert, for example. So the, 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 all, this, all this, this sediment that's been exposed when the ocean dries up gets blown, into, blown by the wind and turned into sand dunes, uh, which then eventually compress as well. Uh, over time, the sand in those dunes at the, the bottom might compress into, into uh, rock as well uh, over many years. Or at least the sand that was once at the bottom of the ocean or lake dries out and over time it compresses until it, 
until it becomes rock, sedimentary rock. So, by the way, the word sedimentary rock uh, or sediment isn't just useful for describing types of rock. The word sediment is used in other situations too. Like, for example, we get sediment at the bottom of a bottle of wine sometimes. Or you might get sediment at the bottle of, uh, the bottom of a bottle of fruit juice. Any stuff that's settled at the bottom of liquid, we can describe it as sediment. You know, for example, I don't know, you might, one day you might turn the turn on the taps in the bathroom and you're running the bath or you're filling the sink with water and you notice, oh, there's like stuff in the bottom of the, there's weird stuff in the in the water, like bits of sand or something. And, um, you know, you get someone round and go, oh yeah, you've got sediment in your in your water tank. You've got sediment in your water tank and the, the guy goes up to investigate your water tank. It might be in the loft and he looks in the water tank and he goes, yeah, I'm sorry to say it, but... Uh, you got a dead mouse in your water tank. That's where the sediment's coming from. Oh, disgusting. Maybe a, it's a sort of disgusting thing that might happen if your water tank isn't covered properly. Sometimes some weird stuff like a mouse can fall in and then it dies in the water tank. Ugh. But anyway, that's sediment. You also might get sediment at the bottle. The bottom, why am I saying bottle? At the bottom of a bottle of wine if... You know, in the process of making the wine, some bits of the fruit, whatever, end up in the in the wine in the bottle, and it gradually falls to the bottom. Sediment. Okay, so it's not just about rocks and things; it's also for other stuff. So, also metamorphic, metamorphic rock. Uh, this is in the same word family as metamorphosis, which is the process of when something changes into something else. For example, the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. Or another example could be this one, like she had undergone an amazing metamorphosis from an awkward schoolgirl into a beautiful woman. That's Those are examples from the Oxford Dictionary of the use of the word metamorphosis, changing from one thing into another. So again, not just rocks. And also similarly, igneous. Now, igneous, igneous rock, it's not really useful outside of the subject of rocks. We don't really use the word igneous to describe anything else other than rocks. It's just for rocks, except, of course, the fact that the word igneous is formed from the Latin word ignus, which means fire. Okay, and so similarly from ignus, you get the word igneous, rock, but also you get the English word ignite, which is a verb. It's a good word, and it means to start to burn or to make something start to burn. So we do have the word ignite. So it is related to igneous. For example, gas ignites very easily, or the hot weather made it much more likely that the forest would ignite. Um, okay, And ignite can also be used as a metaphor, especially with words like controversy or debate. You can ignite controversy or ignite debate. For example, Donald Trump's words ignited controversy for the second time this week. There you go. So that's igneous rock, metamorphic rock, and sedimentary rock. And I've got a terrible joke for you. I've got a terrible pun for you. Are you ready? Well, even if you're not ready, here it comes. So here's my terrible joke for for people who like rocks, especially considering I've just taught you the words, well, the words sedimentary. So Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are on a geology field trip walking around near a lake. And Watson spots something interesting and he says, Holmes, what kind of rock is this? And Holmes thinks about it for a second. Then then he says, sedimentary, my dear Watson. 
It's rubbish, isn't it? Obviously, it's because uh, Sherlock Holmes is famous for saying elementary, my dear Watson. That's his catchphrase, isn't it? Although he never actually says it in any of the books. But anyway, Sherlock Holmes is famous for the phrase elementary, my dear Watson. So sedimentary, my dear Watson. It's a, I know. It's a, but it's a pretty easy joke to adapt. If you want to make a similar joke, all you need is something else that sounds like elementary. In this case, it's sedimentary. So here's another one, for example. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are wandering through a weird alien landscape where everything's made of chocolate. And Watson wanders over to a tree, a strange tree, and he says to, Sh- to Sherlock Holmes, what's this massive tree with red and yellow sweets on it? And wa- and Holmes thinks about it for a second, and then he goes, M&M tree, my dear Watson. I know, I know, it's rubbish. But I, I challenge you to come up with a joke about r- different types of rock. Come up with a joke for igneous rock or metamorphic rock. I, I challenge you. Anyway, how do you know what kind of rock is which? Well, here is a little guide. It's got little bubbles in it. It's igneous rock. Fine. Like pumice stone, the kind of stone that you might have in the bathroom. It's good for um, exfoliation. Pumice stone is igneous rock. Comes out of volcanoes, doesn't it? Uh, if it's got some little bits that seem a bit shiny, it's probably igneous rock as well. For example, granite. Granite, that hard grey rock which is used to build really good quality things. Like, imagine a really good quality, very smart, good quality wall outside a bank. Or an impressive modern monument in the centre of town. It's probably made from granite. It's really hard and it's it looks nice. It's got almost some sort of shiny little little elements in it too. Has it got some lines or bands in it? Not musical bands, unless it's Dinosaur Junior. Lol. Uh, has it got like lines like uh, or bands in it? It's probably igneous rock as well. Has it got fossils in it, like dead animals that got compressed and preserved and petrified? Well, it's probably sedimentary rock, like the rock in, in the Grand Staircase. Does it contain sand or pebbles? If it does, it's probably sedimentary rock. Does it break apart fairly easily? Do you feel like you could break it apart in your hands? That's probably sedimentary rock as well. Does it look like it was formed in layers? That's probably sedimentary rock. Is it? Does it have a glassy surface and sharp edges, a bit like flint? Uh, the kind of rock that you would use to make, to make an arrowhead in uh, sort of, uh, you know, the Stone Age. Then that's metaf- metamorphic rock. Is it basically a big, beautiful crystal? If it is, then it's metamorphic. Is it a diamond? If it is, then it's mine. Okay, it's fine. Just give it to me. I'll look after it. No problem. So the atmosphere in Earth, the atmosphere, the air, is made from uh, gases that were released from the bubbling cauldron of magma under the surface and which were ejected into the air through volcanoes back in the days when the Earth was still kind of on fire, basically. All that gas created our atmosphere, and we're lucky in that this combination of gases in our atmosphere is just right for sustaining life. It's created the ozone layer uh, and and it's it's created this balance of, um, of different uh, gases that make it possible for life to exist. Lucky, really. So all the land and sea and all that stuff uh, is on the surface of these tectonic plates, the, the, the hard crust that... Uh, cooled down on the surface of all that magma. So all the land masses on the top, which are exposed above the water layer, these are all the continents. So the tectonic plates under the ground, they move around all the time, very slowly from our perspective, but they do move around all the time. 
And, uh, you know, there are points where these tectonic plates meet each other. Uh, fault lines, you know, that's often where the volcanoes and the earthquakes happen. So now let's say that at one point, the countries that we all live on, they were actually in different positions because the tectonic plates that underpin everything on Earth were actually in different places millions and millions of years ago. So the land on top of these plates is made up of the outpourings of volcanoes and also the layers of sedimentary rock, which is the result of erosion of different kinds. Okay, So rock that's spewn out of volcanoes gets eroded over time and the sediments of that erosion are carried out into the ocean or lakes uh, from glaciers at the top of mountains, down through rivers and out into the sea. The sediments then become sand at the bottom of oceans and lakes. Now there was there was a big ocean over these parts of the USA, the parts that we visited. There, it, there was, at one point, an ocean over the top of that stuff. And that ocean dried up in the sun and revealed the sediments at the bottom. Now, it dried up in the sun. Now, that part of the USA where we were visiting, Bryce Canyon and all that stuff, that is where that is, is located now. That spot has actually occupied various different points of latitude over the years. Basically, that area in Arizona used to be further south. And at one point, it was equatorial. It was kind of on the equator. And as the tectonic plates shifted, uh, the continent moved and that area went north and became sub-equatorial. Okay, sub-equatorial. That means the part just above or just below the equator above in this case. That area, sub-equatorial, tends to be super hot and dry. And that's where you find deserts these days, like the Sahara. The Sahara Desert and other extremely dry areas tend to be sub-equatorial. So, uh, as this area moved up into sub-equatorial latitude, the ocean dried up and the sandy sediment was exposed to the sun in sub-equatorial conditions, and it became a huge desert covered with sand dunes being blown around by the wind. Those dunes built up and up over millions of years, and the pressure of their own weight solidified them into sandstone rock. Okay? Right. Big, big layers of sandstone rock. The heat of the sun baked it, and also traces of iron in the stone reacted with some moisture, causing this rust-coloured rock that you see everywhere. Um, you know, again, like the way that rust appears on an old bike. So imagine a huge plateau of sandstone rock baked by the sun. A huge plateau, hundreds of square kilometres. Uh, a massive plateau that covers an area of hundreds of square kilometres. Sandstone rock baked by the sun. Now, I'm sorry, I'm not sure of the time frame exactly here, but we're talking about stuff that happened over hundreds of millions of years ago and changes that occurred over that period, give or take a few hundred million years. I can't even imagine that much time, but it's a really, really long time, even longer than this episode of the podcast. And by the way, here I'm talking to you about geology, right? I'm, I'm talking to you about geology, but I'm just an English teacher, of course. There might be some of you out there listening to this who are actual geologists, and I don't want you to feel like I'm like teaching my grandmother to suck eggs. Teaching your grandmother to suck eggs. That's an old expression which means teaching someone to teaching something to someone who already knows it. I don't know where the expression comes from. I mean, did you, does your grandmother know how to suck eggs? Who's sucking eggs? Anyway, 
I don't want you to feel like I'm teaching my grandmother to suck eggs. You might already know more about all this geology than I do. But anyway, I'm just trying to give some context about 3.5 billion years of context. Well, 13.8 billion years of context to to be exact. Now, this stuff, this is all stuff that I've read about when I was there because it helped us to understand the significance of the place that we were visiting. And I hope that it helps you to understand it too. By the way, if you want to read the words that I'm saying, like if you feel like there's vocab that you're missing, you can see all of this stuff printed on the page for this episode, as, as, as is usually the case. So, tectonic plates are moving under the surface all the time, okay? Sometimes the plates push against each other or rub over each other, causing the land on the surface to rise. And remember, the, the situation we're in now here in this part of the story is that we've got a huge plateau of of solid sandstone rock, sedimentary rock that's been baked by the sun after the oceans dried up, that used to be sand dunes, that has become like solid sandstone, a big plate, massive plateau of solid sandstone rock. Now, um, because of the activity of the tectonic plates underneath all of this, sometimes this causes the land to rise. And often, like tectonic activity uh, creates mountain ranges and sometimes volcanoes. Like when, when, for example, um, magma comes up and come, comes out of out the surface, creating huge mountains with lava flowing down the side, like creating all of this probably igneous rock uh, flowing down the sides of the mountains. Now, these mountain ranges, like, for example, the Rocky Mountains to the north of Arizona, uh, and those and the Sierra Nevada and all that stuff, these kind of big mountain ranges, after the volcanoes have cooled down, they might get glaciers forming on the top as moisture collects there. It snows at the top and the snow gets even more compact and turns into lakes of ice at the top of these mountains, glaciers. These Those glaciers slowly move down the mountain because of gravity. And as they move down, they scrape and crush all the rock from the mountains, carving out valleys as they go. As the glaciers get lower and lower they and they melt, their rivers, the rivers that are produced by the glaciers, carry the stones and the sand and the rock sediments out to sea. Okay, um, So these are the sediments needed to make these big sandstone plateaus, which are exposed when the ocean dries up. And in this case, These mountains are the Rocky Mountains to the north. That's where all the sediment originally came from. So these tectonic plates move everything on the surface around uh, over millions of years so that, for example, Bryce Canyon and the whole Grand Staircase area has actually shifted north from an equatorial zone to a sub-equatorial zone to its present location. Also, volcanic activity underground can push the land up not just forming mountains, but whole areas can be lifted up like a general raise, like almost like a very broad sort of bubble. The whole area can just sort of lift up a, like a big swelling. You might end up with a whole plateau rising up over many years, very slowly, turning it into high ground. Not a sudden like steep mountain but a gradual swell over hundreds of miles so that what was once the bed of the ocean or the bed of a huge lake becomes a huge plateau that's actually at quite a high altitude and if you were to drive up it you'd just be driving up a gradual hill for hundreds of miles before you actually get to the the general top of this this sort of broad swell 
high plateau of sandstone. And that's exactly what happened at Bryce and the surrounding areas. Okay, the whole thing that used to be this ocean floor and a lake basin got pushed upwards slowly to form this high plateau of sandstone. Now, a lot of it is also limestone. A lot of that sandstone is actually limestone. It's a kind of sandstone formed from deposits of things like shells or animal animal matter that was in the water of that ocean or that lake. So there are loads of fossils in this area and you can track the evolution of animals by comparing evidence from each stage in the staircase. It's like a time ladder or something. It tells you the story of life. So this sandstone with a limestone layer on top becomes this high plateau. Now, like I said before, remember, if you stand on the edge of Bryce Canyon, um, uh, if you stand on the edge, like my wife and I did, you can see in the distance on the horizon on the other side, the other part of this plateau. And at one point, uh, that was all connected. But in the middle now, there's this huge series of canyons and these big sort of drops in the ground with massive bits of rock that stick up in ridges and, and towers and things. And on the top of each ridge, there are tall towers of rock in these weird shapes, and they have different lines of colour depending on what layer in the staircase they're from. So the whole place, this weird alien landscape of Bryce Canyon, was formed from that plateau that I described earlier. And here's how that happened. So basically, cracks formed in the sandstone on this plateau as it rose up, a bit like the way cracks appear on the top of a cake as it rises. Okay? Imagine that as a cake rises, eventually the little cracks appear on the top because it sort of stretches, doesn't it? Similarly, when this whole plateau of sandstone rose, cracks appeared on the top. Now, over millions and millions of years, these cracks were subject to different forms of erosion. The er erosion means the way in which rock is shaped or, or um, when like the surface of the rock is worn away by different things, like particularly water and ice and maybe wind as well. So top of the plateau with these cracks in it, moisture freezes in, in winter to become ice. Because, you know, you see these places in the summertime, like when we were there, they're very hot and dry. But in the winter, everything's covered in frost. And the, the ice in winter sits like a layer on top of all of this rock. Imagine before Bryce Canyon um, was formed, just this, this plateau with cracks in it. So the ice sits on the top and, and uh, uh, like a layer on top of everything. Now, during the day, when the sun is high in the sky, it melts the ice a bit and the ice then melts and trickles, flows into the cracks. And then at night again, when it gets below zero, all that water that's trickled down freezes again. And we know what that water expands when it freezes. Imagine, for example, leaving a bottle of beer or a bottle of wine in the freezer and then forgetting about it, like you go on holiday for three months and you leave your bottle of wine in the freezer. When you find it again, obviously you'll see that the bottle has cracked often. Either the bottle has cracked or the top has come out and it's the, the frozen beer or frozen wine has pushed the top out or at least broken the glass. That's because the liquid has expanded as it's frozen. Okay, same thing here. Water from ice melts into the cracks and then at night it freezes and the, the, the water that's trickled into these tiny cracks freezes and expands and it breaks the rock. And then during the day, uh, and then during the night, it freezes again. And then during during the day, it melts again and, and goes further and further in. And so basically the ice every night is cracking 
the rock and breaking the rock up at different places. Then the water or ice works works its way down, cracking the rock as it goes deeper and deeper. Some of the rock is harder than others. Some rock is, is more durable than other rocks. And so not all of it gets cracked. Not all of it disintegrates. When the rock cracks, it turns into like uh, smaller pieces of rock or sand, uh, which gets blown away or washed away by, by you know, some, some streams of water or wind. And so what happens then is that these creepy-looking towers over millions of years, are left behind by the erosion of the ice and water. You end up with these weird sort of shapes of these rock piece, rock towers which didn't get cracked by the ice and so remain there while all the other uh, sandstone around them was basically sort of broken down by this process of erosion from ice and water. It's like the ice and the water and just simply the passage of time have worked on these towers of rocks, sculpting them into different shapes that stand now like statues above the open space of the canyon below them. Now, below that, at the bottom, you get like trickling water and wind, and these things smooth out these gullies and creek beds that go down and down into the canyon. So you can actually now walk down into, you can walk down the canyon walls into these riverbeds. You can walk down the sides of the canyon and walk around looking up at these towers of rock, you can kind of commune with the rock formations. And to the Native Americans, who were the first people to ever visit these spaces and to live there, these places were deeply sacred and special, and they believed that spirits lived in the rocks. They were really, really important sites. In fact, they saw the faces of loads of different spirits and gods in the stones when they looked at them. And in fact, uh, as you see all of these abstract shapes, these strange rock formations, like, like for example, there's one called Thor's Hammer, which is like a huge, it looks like Thor's Hammer standing on the edge of this outcrop of rock, like just really amazing. But also some of them look like statues of people and, and stuff. As you look at all these abstract shapes, your mind attempts to make sense of it all. And it's very easy to see faces and animals and even sort of little stories in the formations. You know, you can see what look like sort of scenes, like um, um, sculptures and stuff. So, and really it's just random stuff, but your mind starts to kind of see faces and see different forms and things. You know, like when you see big clouds in the sky on a really like sunny day when there are big white clouds in the sky, Sometimes uh, you can see these clouds and it looks like the clouds are forming different shapes and, and you, they look like things. Like, you know, you can say, hey, look, that one looks like a dog or that one looks like a face or that one looks like Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un kissing or something. That's quite rare, to be honest. Usually it's a dog or a face, isn't it? Or something like that. Um, it's the same kind of thing. You know, you look at these rocks and you can just see hundreds of faces in the rocks. It really is stunning to look at. And actually, seeing faces or shapes in rocks or clouds, that's actually a recognised phenomenon, which is called, um, how do you say it, pareidolia. Pareidolia is a psychological phenomenon in which the mind responds to a stimulus, usually an image or a sound, by perceiving a familiar pattern where none actually exists, for example, in random data or random patterns. So it's when your mind uh, perceives... um, um, a certain pattern when in fact there is no pattern. 
Common examples of this are perceived images of animals or faces or objects in cloud formations, or the example of the man in the moon. When, when you look at the moon, it looks like a face, or the moon rabbit. When you look at the moon, it looks a bit like a, a, a rabbit. I don't know if you've ever seen that. My dad thinks that the moon looks like a rabbit. Yeah, I know. Uh, but, I mean, if you look at the moon in a certain way, it some of the features can start to appear like a, uh, the shape of a rabbit. Usually it's a face, right? I, when I look at the moon, it looks like a face kind of going, ooh, like that. That's what the moon looks like to me. Obviously, they're just it's just craters on the surface of the moon and your mind makes it look like a face. It's not actually a face. Also, this relates to things like hidden messages, perceived hidden messages within recorded music played in reverse. Like, for example, you know, um, certain evidence that people give for this conspiracy theory that they think Paul McCartney is dead. If you play, if you um, uh, play certain records backwards, it they say that you can hear messages, and it's like. And they're going, look, it sounds like Paul is dead. Like, Paul is dead, Paul is dead. No, it's not Paul is dead. That's just random noise. It's just para, para, pareidolia, mate. Next time someone says that, hey, listen to this. Sounds like he's saying, I buried Paul. It's like, no, it's just, it's just pareidolia, mate. Um, yeah. Have you ever done that? I don't know if you've ever done that. It's People used to do that in the 70s. They'd play records back and go, listen to that. It's like the voice of Satan. And, and you're like, oh, come on. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what was it, the joke? There's a joke by Bill Hicks, which is like, uh, if you're playing your record collection backwards, you are Satan. That's a great way to destroy your the needle on your record player. Anyway, um, so... Uh, perceived images of animals or faces in cloud formations, for example, or hearing indistinct voices in random noise, basically, it's just pareidolia. So when your mind is presented with a stimulus, like a pattern or just random sounds, it tries to make sense of it and often will kind of read the stimulus as something familiar. And this probably accounts for the way that people can see ghosts in swirling mist. You know, it starts to resemble a, a person or a face, but really it's just random mist. Uh, or it's when people see images of like Jesus in in a piece of toast or something, you know. Every now and then, someone like in the newspaper or online, there's like someone discovered the face of Jesus in some toast, and the to you know you you look at the piece of toast and it looks vaguely like Jesus. So it's probably just pareidolia. Either that or Jesus is trying to communicate to us uh, in some way, and he's and putting his face in toast is the only way he can do it. Um, Anyway, so these towers in Bryce Canyon that, that look like faces, they're called hoodoos, which is kind of a cool name. Sounds a bit like voodoo, doesn't it? And some of them have very human forms. They look a bit like old Roman statues that have been worn away by the rain. Or they look a bit like architecture by Gaudi, the, the guy who designed various buildings in Barcelona, like the uh, Sagrada Familia Cathedral. So they look a bit like weird Gaudi um designs or statue, old Roman statues, broken Roman statues or something. In any case, these weird rocks, they just like, they look like spooky, ghostly statues standing in these huge auditoriums made from the erosion of rocks over million year, millions of years. It's incredible and it's a lot more powerful than any of the artworks that we saw in Los Angeles. It's genuinely breathtaking stuff. 
So after an afternoon of being wowed by the spectacle of hoodoos and a big naturally occurring bridge as well in the rock, so there's one point where there's just like this huge bridge in the rock and it just was formed by nature, just by uh, like like um, erosion flowing down the side of the, the, the cliff face and just eating away at the rock bit by bit and and eating away at the bit underneath and the wind and stuff and you end up with this amazing sort of bridge absolutely stunning so after all this uh this was uh we we did a little hike into the canyon it was it was late afternoon so the whole place uh got flooded with this incredible orange pinkish rust colored light it was absolutely amazing so after our experience there we drove to our accommodation sort of uh an hour and a half down the road and uh that night we stayed in a in a mountain ranch like a kind of uh, an old farm ranch kind of thing with these little uh wooden huts so we slept in a wooden hut that night um the ranch was cool there we 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 had to like drive along a little track through a field apparently there were buffalo in the field although we couldn't see them because it was dark and in the morning they weren't there they they, they were on the other end of this massive field, which was a disappointment. I wanted to see buffalo. I couldn't see any. And there were chickens running around and cows and horses in the field and stuff like that. And we, we slept in this uh, wooden cabin, which was amazing. And, well, I'd say amazing. I mean, there were like spiders and things, which was a bit uh, creepy. If you're a city boy like I am now, like, oh, spiders. Um, I saw one spider and I didn't tell my wife about it. I just sort of managed to deal with it. Um, without letting her know, because if she'd known, she would have been, she would have freaked out. Because you know, she's she's from Paris. She's not from the countryside. So anyway, that night out on this ranch, we took a look at the night sky because there wasn't any light pollution out there, and um, the night sky with no light pollution is unbelievable. Um, I don't know where you are in the world. Maybe you're in a place where there isn't much light pollution, so you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you've just seen it or you're aware of it or whatever. But anyway, in Paris, you look up at the sky in the middle of the night and you can't really see that many stars because there's so much light from the ground flooding up into the air and you can't really see it. But um, the, the night sky that we saw was just unbelievable. The Milky Way is insane. I mean, there are so many stars. It looks like a mist um, and the Milky Way is like this, it's like someone has poured milk into coffee. You know the way that milk uh, billows into into black coffee? Uh, it looks, the Milky Way looks a bit like that. It's like someone's sort of thrown some milk into this black coffee and it's all spilled out across the universe in this big stream, this mist. It's just mind-blowing. Then after that, we... Um, the, the next part of our trip was to drive through into the Navajo Nation. And, um, oh God, what am I going to do now? I think I'm going to have to stop here because of time. But I want the next episode to be the last in this Holiday Diary series. So what I'm going to have to try and do is, in the next episode, I'm going to have to try and tell you the stories of um, the things we sort of saw and experienced in the Navajo Nation's area. And that means kind of talking about the Navajo, which is, you know, a tribe of uh, American Indians. And it was really interesting to to go there. And because a lot of the places, like, for example, Monument Valley, a lot of these areas, it's it's basically Navajo territory. And it's a it's a sovereign state. 
the Navajo actually have their own territory with their own president and stuff. It's considered to be a sovereign state within America, within the United States. And everyone you meet there, all the people who work in the shops and the hotels and stuff, they're all Navajo Indians. And that was really interesting. And it meant that I sort of found out some things about the Navajo that I found to be uh, really, really cool. And I met a couple of uh, like Navajo people who obviously they're these days, they're just like sort of modern people and they wear, you know, clothes like everyone else. Um, but it still was really interesting to, to meet some of those people. So I've got some other stories to tell about stuff that happened to us as well and, uh, and things like that. So I guess I'm going to try and finish it all up in the next episode, talking about the Navajo Nation and and then um, maybe one or two other things at the end. And then that'll be the end of the Holiday Diary series. I really hope that you've enjoyed coming with me on this trip. I hope you appreciate the things that I've been attempting to explain to you. All I've been trying to do is get across to you how impressive it was for us. And it's impossible to put into words, really, the way it feels when you're exposed to these massive landscapes and these millions of years of history just there in front of you. It's really hard to sum it up, but it's moving and amazing. And it makes you feel like you're small in the grand scheme of things. So anyway, I hope that you've enjoyed listening to it and that I've managed to get across some of the feelings uh, that we had when we were there and saw it all for ourselves. Okay, so there'll be another one of these coming and then it'll be back to normal podcasting with some conversations with uh, with a guest on the podcast. Okay, all right then. Um, yeah, all right. Have a nice day or morning or night or evening or whatever it is you're doing. If you're on a bus, then uh, don't miss your stop. And if you're driving somewhere, don't forget to take the right exit off the highway or whatever it is you're doing, wherever you're going. And uh, get in touch, leave a comment on the website, check out the page for the episode, you can see some photographs there. Okay, all right, speak to you again on the podcast very soon, but for now, goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.